0: 2016 Addiction Treatment Forum published an article on fighting the stigma against OTPs, stating that people and education are needed. Although I certainly find that important today, there's much more of an external view than an internal one, from outside the field as opposed to coming from within the field. There are pockets within the field which also perpetrate the stigma against OTPs, with the view from Narcotics Anonymous, for one, that states that using medications to support recovery makes someone not truly sober, and also from those who think that abstinence is the only path for all individuals. But what about the view from those who work inside OTPs? Is stigma supported and perpetrated by those inside? Our guest today addressed this question in her doctoral dissertation. To be honest, the system itself has created stigma with rigid federal regulations, including hiding the care into facilities that are separate from what would be called mainstream environments, rigid and unbending rules on take-homes, red tape and administrative regulations regarding deaths, dosing and potential fees involved, etc. Any individual who's received treatment from or worked in an OTP has seen these difficulties in action. It is noteworthy to mention that presently there is a push in Washington, D.C., led by Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts and Congressman Daniel Norcross, to not only continue the less restrictive COVID era rules, but to make methadone available through physician's offices to increase access to care, so our guest's work could not have been more timely. Dr. Kathy Eggert possesses more than three decades of experience as a social worker specializing in treating people with substance use and mental health disorders. Eggert, a long-term employee of the App Foundation in New Haven, Connecticut, serves as their director of an inner-city methadone maintenance program, one of many roles she has held during her tenure there. During her career, Eggert has held a number of leadership roles, including being the launching director of the App Foundation's Access Center, the first to provide low-barrier, same-day admission to OTPs and other outpatient programs. Her sustained commitment to working with people with opioid use disorder was birthed during the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic that has shaped the research interest and in scholarship. As a practitioner and scholar focused on the intersection of regulatory structures, culture, stigma, and practice implications. Edgar holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from Albertus Magnus, a Master of Arts psychology from Connecticut College, a Master of Social Work from the University of Connecticut, I like that, and a Master <laughs> of Leadership and change, and PhD in leadership and change from Antioch University. Welcome to the show,
1: Dr. Eckert. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: (laughs) Isn't it funny sometimes when someone reads your bio and you say, who are they talking about?
1: Yeah, I don't know
0: that person. (laughs) 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 I do that all the time at conferences. I'm like, I don't know that guy. So (laughs) I'm glad to have you, and I really enjoyed reading your dissertation, and I thought it brought up so many things that a, a discussion was really warranted about that. So you start out by mentioning that our efforts as a nation to reverse the rising tide on the ever-increasing deaths related to opioids, and I purposely don't say the opioid epidemic because I find it disrespectful to those who died as well as their families and supports long before it was considered a crisis or epidemic. I think that those are hampered by stigmatizing and ultimately discriminatory war on drug policies. Can you talk about what some of these policies are?
1: Jeff, that's a long question. We could spend a whole day on that. The war on drugs policies extends every facet of our culture, even beyond treating people with substance use disorder. The economic toll, the toll on life, the toll on families is is just horrific. And we have not moved out of the way. We've, We've known these policies are doing detriment for generations now, yet we still lack the political willpower to really take it head on. You know, the policies include things like mass incarceration. You know, at this point in time, we've seen some movement around powder cocaine versus crack cocaine, same drug, different policies, different legalities, where inner city folks who were more likely to have access to crack cocaine were criminalized differently. And we now have generations of black and brown folks that are still feeling the results of that. You know, and it goes beyond crack and you know, that kind of law, but it, it also extends to our entire treatment system, right down to the work that I've been doing over the past, you know, 25 years within a methadone program. Methadone regulations were set up to criminalize people, they were not set up to support and come from a purely treatment lens. They were born out of the time when Dolan and Icelander, two physicians, studied methadone. They found that methadone worked really well to help people regulate their use, stop using illicit substances, become productive in their lives. But it was the Nixon administration that said, we're going to use this because, oh, it reduces crime. Well, yes, if somebody's getting better, they're not going to turn to the streets. It reduces crime. So let's set up this idea of social control. And that's what the methadone treatment system is based on. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about it. The policies and the regulations of this country around drug use are outdated. They marginalize people, and they're largely based on race and social class.
0: The important thing to that, and I say this and it's an unpopular opinion, but you may agree or may not, the drug war over the years has done exactly what it was initially intended to do. Bob Ehrlichman, who worked in the Nixon White House, came out before his death and said, we knew we couldn't criminalize people for being hippies or for being black. So let's criminalize the substance that are associated with them. And they've done that. It's become social control and mass incarceration of black and brown people. So I'm going to say the drug war did what it was supposed to do or what it was designed to do which is not meant to help people with substance use disorders whatsoever. It was social control and criminalization.
1: And Jeff, that's a great point because it actually predates the Nixon administration. This goes back to the 1800s, 1890s with the opium laws in California. It was not about making opium or, or saying that opium was bad for people or was harming people, but it was about controlling a population. And we see this with every immigrant population since then.
0: It was. And that's, when we look at the Harrison Act and, and things that came up, our drug policy has often been driven by what the leadership, if you can use that term, determined was we need to protect white women from from yes. the opium dens, from the African-American folks during, right. you know, like the Harlem Renaissance and during the, you know, when there was a lot of cocaine use. So it's not about public health. It no. needs to be, but it's not.
1: No. Exactly. This is a public health crisis. We have a tainting of our drug supply. And as a result, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. And, you know, it might be easy to say, oh, some people might be, quote, unquote, expendable. Obviously, that is not something I believe until it really hits your front door. But what people don't really recognize is that it touches everybody all the time. You know, if you are fortunate enough to not have had a family member or a friend experience this, it affects us on our bottom line. It it affects our gross national product. It affects our ability to give good health care. It increases the risks of many health related diseases. So this is a public health crisis and it does touch everybody.
0: And, and listeners of the program know that, you know, I, I lost my brother to Opioids. He took his own life with opioids in 1990, and then in 2018, his daughter was found deceased in a hotel in Groton of an overdose. Both were in treatment at the time. There was no co-occurring treatment in 1990, which would possibly help my brother. So I've had someone die in my family before there was an opioid crisis, so to speak, and then after, and the view of each individual was very, very, very different of that, and so I've seen that, and that's one of the reasons I don't say crisis because crisis came when rural and and suburban white kids were passing, not when poor and people from inner cities and people of color, been dying for at least a hundred years in our cities, and we did nothing about
1: it. And what I would add to that, Jeff, is that's you know we'll be focusing obviously on methadone is why well, you have two systems of care. You have a system of care that was created, you know, during the time when heroin was prevalent in the inner city. Trust me, it was it was out in the suburbs too, but it was easier to identify in the inner cities. And we have the system of care that is based on punishing people and controlling people. Where now, with this crisis that began in the early 2000s, we have a different medication for the "quote unquote" new addict, as Al Lesnar said during the Senate committee meetings. And they don't belong in methadone programs. So we have a vastly different treatment system.
0: Oh, absolutely. And having worked in the OTPs and working with people who were indigent and didn't have access to other financial resources, and they weren't other really other options for much of that time, it's very different. One of the things that fascinates me about your work in measuring and looking at the lived experience of those who have worked with patients in using methadone as a part of their recovery is that your employer, App Foundation in New Haven, is one of the country's first OTPs. But interestingly, it's not only just one of the first, but it hasn't sat and rested on its laurels and says, we are going to do things this way the resistance to change isn't there from an organizational perspective. When new data comes out, new practices come out that have a strong evidence base, they become implemented. To me, that's just fascinating.
1: You know, it's an interesting thing, Jeff. I started here a very long time. I was probably three years old when I first started here. 30 years <laughs> ago. And I was a research assistant. So I've gotten to watch our ups and downs over the years. And we used to be an old school program that would taper somebody, you know, after continuation of using substances. And we've always stayed closely aligned to research. You know, as you know, we've had a number of really cool cutting edge people come through here. You know, you mentioned Kathy Carroll earlier, we've had the likes of Kathy Carroll, Bruce Roundsville, Tom Costin. You know, and even our founding director, the founder of this organization was Herb Cleaver, who went on to be the deputy director mm. under William Bennett, the drugs are under the Bush administration. Funny story about him was he left after about two and a half years, SAMSHA, because of war on drug policies and, and it wasn't changing. You know, fast forward to now, our organization major ships when Lynn Madden, our our CEO, mm. came on board and she bought her work from Text, which is a, an organization that looks in best practices and really looking at how do you get people into healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and she changed our front door completely. And I had the privilege of being the opening director. You know, we went from having, you know, when I started here, six-month waiting lists. And you know, a waiting list in a methadone program for somebody coming into treatment is is potentially a death sentence. Correct. Our thinking during the time was, oh, they just weren't ready to come back in and, and make their appointment. Nobody's going to make an appointment six weeks later unless they're super, super organized. Right. You know, so people wouldn't make it to the appointments, and we end up with a six-month waiting list. When we changed our policies, we had gotten it down to about a, a month to get into treatment from the day that we opened the access center. It was within 24 hours to walk in the door. Do an evaluation. Do everything that that we needed to within the regulatory body. But we figured out how to do it and how to get people that first dose of methadone, and then continue to engage them and break down the barriers on the back end that that would lead to either us thinking that we had to discharge somebody. We really tried to make it easy for people to stay in treatment.
0: Yeah, we they- still do that. It's really important to kind of strike when the iron is hot, whenever someone expresses interest. That's when you yeah. want to engage because you can connect with them. And maybe tomorrow they're not into it if you pull them up. But if you are able to connect today, you can okay. work with them and get them to come back because they're starting to form a relationship with the organization and with the person, Absolutely. and they're getting some help. And I think that that's an important part, especially because many of the people who receive treatment – through OTPs, have the greatest amount of need at that particular time. Not all, but many. And that's the folks that you really want to reach because it is a life-saving intervention, just getting somebody to be a part of the program.
1: And emphasize that word, it's a life-saving medication that we've built a really arbitrary structure around.
0: You know, kind of looking at that, you know, this arbitrary structure and things that we do as a field, your study identified Something that it surprised me, but it didn't from working in the OTP system and kind of being a part of this. I can't lie and say I'm fully self-actualized and I was doing all the right things. I was part of the system and I did what the system taught me without much thought. So it's like two thirds of counselors both held stigmatizing beliefs about the individuals coming into treatment and participated in behaviors that were themselves stigmatizing. I've got a couple of questions around that, because what are some of those beliefs and behaviors? You mentioned one, they're just not ready. Oh, if God. they're not they're complying.
1: Not ready, not willing. You know, we, we've we come up with these terms, and, and they're not unique to the methadone world. This is common in the entire span of treatment with substance use disorders, as we use these words quite a bit. The U.S. treatment system as a whole is is really based on social control, and we take away people's self-agency, meaning that we feel that we have to impose structure, that we have to impose sanctions, punishment. Those are all stigmatizing parts of our treatment culture um, across the board. You know, whether you're in a straight up outpatient program versus one that utilizes methadone, if somebody continues to use substances, often we will say, oh, they're not ready. So, you know what, you go away, you go to an inpatient program, if you're able to go to an inpatient program, as you know, it's difficult for Mm -hmm. many different reasons to get into an inpatient program, not to mention that there are barriers, you know, if somebody's a mom with a baby, if somebody's employed, you know, we say, go get ready, go get taken care of, and when you're a better patient, come back to us. And the other realities that we miss is that there, since the dawn of the day, there are people who choose to use drugs. People use drugs. We've known this forever. And we label that group of people as outcasts and somehow say they're not worthy of our care. And we do that in the context of a lot of our programs. We, we talk about person-centered care. We talk about meeting somebody where they're at, but there's an underlying assumption often that we will make them ready. We will help them find the readiness. And and that is part of our job to, you know, utilize motivational enhancement. But some people aren't going to be ready. And the medication of methadone is life-saving regardless. It reduces overdose, as you know. It reduces the risk of engaging in behaviors that might increase exposure to HIV, AIDS, other infections, and so on. So in terms of things that we do within the field, we get frustrated, you know, and some of this is supervision stuff, but frustrated that somebody's not moving into that readiness stage, or that they're continuing to use substances. And by design in a methadone program, that means that we punish them. Part of what I saw as some of the stigmatizing lens, and Jeff, I'm going to say this full disclosure, I've been doing this a long time, there's nothing that Any of my participants said that I at one time did not say Mm -hmm. or do myself. You know, we say that they're not safe and don't look at the full picture um, and partner with, we're not allowed to look at the full picture and partner with somebody. We have this rigid criteria that we're asked to impose on somebody.
0: You know, it's a difficult process. And, you know, even the intake process, I think of things and I believe that the system itself and the way we're trained to work in it and the environment of it, not so, maybe not as much now as it was, is a correlating factor to these attitudes and behaviors oh, yeah. that we're repeating them. That the way we were trained to do things and not question it because this is the the program. So it's one of those things. I do the best I can. I have the best intentions, but I may not be doing the best thing or it may be doing you know you spoke of counselors who held beliefs and behaviors that mitigated stigma and discrimination. yeah, what were the, some of the things that they did with the folks that served that changed the view, changed everything about the the sure. engagement?
1: and I'm going to jump back a little bit, Jeff, and just say, you know one of the what I found in my themes is that the the stigmatizing views, what I, I found, really were born out of a hardline abstinence-based training. How we, most of us, are trained, you know, even in in addiction medicine right now, is is such a small part of training that docs get and that nurses get, and in the counseling field, you know, talking about medications for opioid use disorder and talking about harm reduction is such a blip on the radar. And it's really all this absence-based thinking. And that comes from a cultural preference. So that was one of the things, if people had more of that alignment, some of the other areas that I saw there in terms of people that mitigated it were individuals that they may have been on the inside of the system at one point or time or may still be meeting that they've received medications for opioid use disorder and may still be continuing. So they had experiences where they said, you know, I know this rule structure, I know how it made me feel, and I know this is what we have to do, but how do I do this better? You know, I had some of uh, my participants talk about, you know, knowing the rules so well and when somebody would be quote-unquote eligible for take-home models, they already had the paperwork filled out or you know, would take a blind eye not with the lens of harming or cheating the system, but you know, maybe overlook something because somebody had a holiday coming up and they needed to help that person get to their holiday and that person was generally safe, but maybe had a slip. So those were factors that I saw that that people, you know, who had some awareness about the, the problem with the structure. We in our education system don't talk about the rule structure of methadone. People who, you know, like you, like I, we come into the system and we have no real exposure beforehand in our education system. We come into the system and based on the philosophy of our program, our physicians, our administrators, we were told this is what we have to do because it's the right thing. It keeps people safe. But we don't have the education that this is born on a war on drugs philosophy. And I think that in this day and age, we're we're talking about it more. There are more really cool groups out there um, promoting self-advocacy. We've talked about the Urban Survivors Union, Mm -hmm. and they put out a document called the Methadone Manifesto, which is completely born out of research, where people are listening differently. And it's, it, we're at a really cool cutting edge time, I think, where change is hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, going to happen to our system. The other piece that I saw that mitigated stigma is some folks really, really could embrace a holistic view. They were mm-hmm. able to step out of that absence view. They really were looking from there for the one person to quote her or him said, you know, Before the grace of God, whether it be this person could be me, this could be my mother, this could be my father, they just saw the person for who they were outside of the stigmatized identity of opioid use disorder, addict, person who is using an uncontrolled way. They saw the person for who they were with the complexity of an illness and the difficulties of a regulatory struggle and tried to figure out how to navigate that differently.
0: One of the struggles that I think that, for me, in while we're we're having a difficult time changing attitudes is, well, I was trained in uh, substance use at a therapeutic community, so everything I learned was wrong and dangerous. And and the idea that because someone has a substance use disorder, they have to suffer to get better is kind of ridiculous. I think that people's adherence to the disease model, without questioning any of it, creates some of that. Now, it's not a philosophical argument of whether it's the disease model, or, but when you hang so tightly onto something without looking at other options, and we're at a time now where people are publishing research that shows maybe it's something else, or maybe it's a combination of all these things. We don't know, but when you hold tightly to the, this is disease and you've got to fight it this way and you've got to do it this way without opening your eyes to the whole person, I think that's that we struggle a little bit with that.
1: And that's why really coming with a public health lens is so important, and really broadening our view. You know, abstinence may work for for some people, and abstinence philosophy, and even within a methadone program, helping somebody move to stopping using all illicit drugs. I mean, methadone works to stop opioid use disorder.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We work in a time now where where our drug supply is tainted, so nobody knows what they're getting when they're getting it but in theory methadone will help somebody stop using opioids it doesn't help stop other substances so we have those expectations that they're coming in the medication works really well. well they haven't stopped using everything else so how are we helping that individual and what are we doing from a public health lens to open our eyes do things differently allow a range of different kinds of treatment responses allow somebody to get the tools they need to stay safe um, and stay alive so we can figure out how to continue to do this better.
0: We look at methadone as a tool uh, Mm -hmm. and understanding that methadone saves people's lives, but it doesn't live their life for them. That, Like any other medication, we have to help somebody live the life that they want instead of the life that we see, which kind of leads me into this next question. It's my belief that wherever the counselor's views and behaviors landed, I think each person comes from a similar place. And that's really wanting to be an asset to those that they serve and wanting the best for the person in front of them. Do you feel I'm safe in that assumption?
1: Wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I had 26 people that I interviewed, and each and every one of them was passionate about taking care of each and every person that was in their programs that came under the purview to work in this field, to work in a methadone program. You want to talk about the other layers of stigma, is that you don't get paid a lot in this field. You you yeah. get paid less if you work in a methadone program. You know, you're you're better off in a hospital system, you're better off in a, a private facility. So people are passionate about taking care of the people that, that are here. So there's no doubt in that.
0: And, and it comes, as I think of, and I don't know who said it, but it says, you do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. And I yeah. think with the research, we're at that point in time where we can make a change and all the legislative attention being paid to this, we really have the opportunity to make a, a positive change for people yes. so that their work is, becomes more rewarding for them because they're seeing better results from their efforts.
1: One of my motivations to do this particular study was we had all these wonderful waivers come out under COVID. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, you know, my experience was, you know, I'm in a place where I'm like, cool, let's help people have more flexibility. Let's reduce treatment burden. I had been in audits with people who, you know, I don't remember if it was a CARF, it must have been a CARF audit. Somebody out of state saying, you're still doing that? And thinking we were crazy and hearing other practitioners across the state kind of say, you know, I'm I'm a little concerned that we're doing this. Maybe we shouldn't be doing it. There was a lot of fear, and there's still a lot of fear about that. But we do know better. We did get a lot of research mm-hmm. out of COVID. That has pointed to change is good.
0: You know, when we talk about change and difficulty, accepting change sometimes. It it ties right into the next question. When I looked at the demographic of the pe- folks I interviewed. I was taken aback by the fact that 48%, almost half, were over the age of 50, yeah. like me. <laughs> Do you feel this may have been a big factor in how the overall data came out with stigmatizing it views bad. and things? And I know the overall sample was fairly small, but other than the fact that it tells us the field needs to get younger, are there any other inferences that you can make from that demographic data? Well, what
1: I, I just want to point out one of the reasons why the people in my data sample might be a little bit older was I was looking for people who had started before COVID, so who had clearly experienced the regulatory environment for a period of time before experiencing the changes we did under COVID. So by design, I think that more of my sample were older folks. They've been around. They many people had I, I think had worked in methadone quite a long time, you know, 10 years, 15 years. So that might have been a flaw within my study. You know, qualitative work, you're, you're looking to look and see kind of what's out there so you can take your next steps and, and go bigger with the data. You know, from my personal experience, we haven't seen school systems change, so I'm not I, I don't believe that necessarily the education is different. Mm -hmm. So I do think we are still producing a lot of this.
0: I think we are a tradition-based field and a lot of it is oral tradition passed down. And that had been the case for many, many years. And so the idea of incorporating research, whether they do we do it through night of blending trials or things like that, the idea of incorporating research is often lost on the people who are doing the work because it doesn't get to them or the training on how to do something doesn't get to them. There was an interesting response. From a participant that you talked to who held a very common belief that you just referenced that treatment should be abstinence based, very common. And you posit that they missed the mark on the intention of harm reduction. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. I've read some recent research on this too is that, you know, whether it be in traditional medical care, and I'm saying traditional medical care because substance use is siloed over here, particularly mm-hmm. methadone programs. So in medical care, And in substance use programs, we we think of harm reduction as being over there. It's a misbelief of it needs to be over here. This is treatment. Treatment is going to take somebody and make them better. This little work is what happens, so to speak, you know, with those grassroots programs that are taking care of people out there. So it's supposed to harm reduction is even supposed to be siloed from treatment. And it misses the mark because within a treatment program, when we open ourselves up and we truly work with somebody where their readiness is at or where their choices are at or where their their life is at, we can have different conversations. So the whole point of harm reduction is as simply as keeping somebody alive to allow them to make the choices they want. When we silo harm reduction from a treatment center, we run the risk of losing somebody. In Connecticut, We've recently, through um, the Connecticut Harm Reduction Association and a portion of the Department of Public Health, had access to harm reduction rovers. I don't know if you've heard about these, but they're essentially large tackle boxes, you know, three feet high, three feet wide, filled with safe supplies. And they were offered to a number of programs. And in addition to the App Foundation, there was other programs that have these where we're able to offer somebody Sake syringes, wound care supplies, clean smoking kits, so that they can take care of themselves. And what I will say, Jeff, we're, we've we been doing this now, I think, for about a year, I want to say, at the App Foundation and, and other programs. The nature of the conversation somebody changes when you can be as real as possible with where they are at and have conversations about what they're doing in the moment. And then a couple of days later, they're saying, you know what, I want to make that phone call to a residential program, you know, as a provider to be able to speak that and understand that somebody is doing what they need to do and what they feel is where their life is at or needs to be at or they want to be at. And I'm not going to I want to be careful about those words, you know, or they choose to use substances because that's their choice. It's my job as a healthcare provider to keep people safe.
0: I agree that I think people miss the mark on harm reduction. And where I see the mark being missed is that even more siloed, it's it's looked at as being over here when it's really a part of the continuum, is that people look at harm reduction and say, harm reduction is to hold people until they're ready for treatment. And that's a misnomer. Harm reduction is designed to meet that person where they are at today and help them stay alive. Mm-hmm. And if tomorrow they want something different, we adjust to that. Right. But it is the end unto itself until the person we work with tells us different or not. It's keeping somebody alive is enough. And and the the risk reduction, the kits and things like that, I know that goes way back to the 90s, how we cared for individuals with HIV. And so it's, it makes perfect sense to use that. And Larry Kramer, who really has a single individual, changed the whole view of HIV with Dr. Fauci, actually, as his ally, is one of my heroes in terms yeah. of community organizing. And the social worker in me is community organized. My minor, I can't get out of. It. <laughs> but I think that we need to look differently at harm reduction as a valuable tool unto itself. It doesn't yeah. have to be more lead to something else. And you know, frustrations with patients and care is not an unusual phenomenon. I see it as a, uh, in many cases, a common. Counter-transferential response that can be mitigated through supervision. How did that play out during the course of the study in terms of the frustrations?
1: You are absolutely right. Frustration is part of working with the human population, you know, and the counter-transference piece is, you know, I see somebody and you know, I see Jeff, he has all this potential. That's the counter-transference piece. But when it comes in the guise of a system that by design is centered around social control and the frustration leads to enforcing and punishing patients, it becomes stigmatizing in a way that is harmful to everybody. One of the things that I I have not mentioned is there's this concept called intervention stigma and this was put forward by a researcher, E. Madden, I forget the first name, but he or she talked about methadone being one of the most stigmatized medications is as a result of systems, as a result of structural stigma, we actually start to stigmatize the medication itself. And when the frustrations around a person behaving in a methadone program, and then we're reacting to the person in care, based on our frustrations, and taking away bottles or making a decision about a, a dose or saying they're not worthy to be in a group because they were acting out in a group rather than working through that in the context of a group. What a person learns is that the medication is bad, that the system of care is bad. So by design, we end up alienating the very people that we're supposed to serve.
0: And, and... To uh, kind of paraphrase my friend and colleague, Pat Reamer, things will change when we stop talking about stigma and we start talking about what it really is, and that's discrimination. Correct. Stigma is a thought. Discrimination is the act. And I use that whenever possible, and I always give credit to Pat for saying that, but it opened my eyes when she said that. Let me quote one sentence in the body of your dissertation that really struck me. And not being naive, it didn't surprise me. Methadone maintenance treatment is more closely aligned with that of a carceral system rather than that of a healthcare setting. Now you've referenced that idea many times through the course of our conversation. Do you see that feeling being resonant and embraced within the OTP environment? Sure.
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt. And and that thought, predates me by a yeah. lot that's been talked about in methadone programs for a long time. Yeah, you see this acted out every day. It's, you know, we have it drilled in our head that methadone somehow is these words about safety. We we treat methadone in a substance abuse setting, to to quote my my friend and CEO, Lynn Madden, <laughs> we treat methadone like plutonium. And it's not, it's a medication, but because of these layers of culture and regulation, We have this idea that we've got to protect communities. We've got to protect individuals. We've got to protect people's pets from those people that we treat because they can't manage and they won't manage. And that is the carceral system. It's this idea that the people that we serve need to be controlled and monitored. And it happens in all of our actions around take-home bottles. You know, if somebody comes in and they have a slip, you know, unlike if somebody's a diabetic and they eat cake, we don't sit there and have conversations about, well, you know, okay, you know, maybe you need a nutritionist. Hey, was your birthday? Let's talk about what you need to do next. You see the results. How did it affect you? What do we do to support you? You know, in a methadone system, we say taking your bottle away. Well, I have to go to my grandmother's because it's Thanksgiving. My grandmother lives in Maine. How am I going to do that? We put people in a position of choosing to take their medicine regularly and control and have mm-hmm. self-agency, and we take that away from that.
0: As you're talking, something just popped in my head, and I'm going to throw it out there before we finish up, and it's that the stigmatizing ideas and discriminatory behaviors that we see from within the OTP are a product. Of the OTP system and regulations and not from the individuals that work in the system who may hold those beliefs and get involved in those behaviors. It is a it systemic is issue that correct. permeates the correct. entire treatment process.
1: It comes down to systemic racism, which is our, our structural racism, which is the system, how the system was created, it is also intersectional stigma, meaning good patients are treated differently. How we label good patients mm-hmm. and bad patients, because that's how the how our discriminatory language will come out. But it, it's by design. It is how you know the title of my dissertation is the intersection of culture and regulation. It, mm-hmm. it completely overlaps in the United States. It is our culture and our regulations, and that's what the methadone system is a product of. I am going to go back to what we've echoed earlier: is good people work here good people who are passionate mm-hmm. about people but we have a system that creates a set of thinking and behaviors that we need to undo
0: it's a systemic issue that affects Correct. everybody under the roof yep including patients who often do self say self-stigmatizing uh, words okay. and behaviors
1: or say the medication's bad
0: is there anything i may have missed that you'd like to put out there before we end?
1: There is, you know, I'm just going to echo once again that that there is, are opportunities coming up. We know that the MOTA bill is making its way through the legislative bodies, and it's an opportunity for change. You know, OTPs will be around. We will have our jobs. There are still people who will benefit from the structures, but we need to get this medication into the hands of people. You know, people are dying, and there's no sugarcoating that. And the data point is, there's like two and a half million people minimum that have opioid use disorder mm-hmm. that would benefit from the agonist medications, be it methadone or buprenorphine. Stigma affects access to both of those medications, much more so with methadone because of the regulatory structure. Yeah. We need to update our systems. You know, The motor bill is designed to potentially get methadone into pharmacies to get trained physicians and practitioners able to prescribe it. We need to be doing these things to save lives.
0: Advocates for the OTP industry are coming out and talking about this as a crisis for the OTPs based on some falsehoods and things like that. But in the 60s, John Kennedy, during a speech, talked about crisis and opportunity kind of being all together, at least in in Chinese characters. I'm not sure how accurate that actually was, but it was a nice sentiment. And I think it is. It's an opportunity to make the changes. And there are organizations, especially I can say from what my knowledge here in Connecticut, that are making those changes and putting them into place. So that's heartening. I don't know about the rest of the countries that don't have the knowledge and access, but I certainly see it happening are, here.
1: I have learned through my research and my recent networking that are, there are some really great pockets of people doing good work.
0: So there's some hopefulness that we don't leave on a negative account. There's hopefulness in that that change is, is happening. Kathy, I'd like to thank you very much for spending time with us to talk about this. It's a difficult topic to talk about because it's not fluff and what people want to hear. It's accurate, and it shows the need for change, and we talked about how change is beginning. So thank you for your time and efforts on this matter, and, and we're glad that you came and joined us today.
1: It's an honor, Jeff. Thank you.
0: If you're interested in the full text of the dissertation, I'll post that link on our advertising for the podcast, and I'll make sure to make it available through the site. Uh, Thanks to everyone for spending some time of your day with us and listening. We'll see you all next time. All of us at the CCB, wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. We'll talk soon, everybody.